BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Are you ready? Yeah, man. Guys, welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. I'm Jeff Fader, and my friend Tom Nugent is here. Knives by Nugent. I'm so psyched to talk to him. Great guy. But before we get to it, let's take care of a little business. Number one, I want to thank my friends at Broadback Ironworks, and they are the makers of an awesome uh, uh, grinder, a 2x72 grinder. I love this thing. I use it all the time. I got two of them. I am spoiled. And, I, and, and you should be spoiled too. And if you go to broadbackironworks.com, put in the promo code KNIFETALK10, you will get 10% off a discount code. And they're having a Black Friday sale from November 15th through the 30th. Knife Talk 10 doesn't count, but they're going to have a great sale the 15th through the 30th. So check out what's going on over Broadback Ironworks. Different grinders, you get different attachments, different packages, definitely worth it. BroadbackIronworks.com. Many thanks to my friends over there. Next is my friends at Even Heat. Even Heat are the manufacturer of the finest heat treat ovens available. Go find your next oven at evenheat-kiln.com. Definitely check out their tap control. Definitely check out their solid state drive. Don't sleep on those. They're super easy to use. And if you just want to do the old turn and burn, the set it and forget it, they got that. So you just dial up to the temperature. Bingo, bango, bongo. You're all squared away. But the Even Heat guys are really great in terms of working with knife makers, tool makers, hammer makers. They make the greatest kilns for some of the best uh, guys who are hardening their stuff around. So go check out what's going on. Evenheat-kiln.com. Next are my friends at Nordic Edge. That's at Nordic underscore Edge on Instagram, nordicedge.com.au. It's a great pro tool knife company in Australia for people who want to get into blacksmithing, bladesmithing, for knife making. They have materials. They have all the stuff you need to get started or resupply. They got the screw-on file guides that they made with Mertansu. Outstanding. They have a tang hole saw that's really great. They have other things that they've made like beveling jigs and stuff like that. So if you're in Australia and you're looking for a little bit of something, something, Go check out the, my friends over at nordicedge.com.au. And if, you wanna, if you're in the United States and you'll be like, I want to know what Mert Tansu is doing, go to knifekits.com and check out the big Mert file guide. It's a monster, a total monster. Uh, next is Lawrence Lake. Lawrence Lake, this, this guy is unbelievable. Maritime Knife Supply is unbelievable. 
All your belts, of, all, all your knife making needs, belts, abrasives, steels, kilns, forges, presses, heat treating ovens, everything you need to get started, resupplied. They're in Canada, but they ship with ease. I ordered something on Tuesday night. It arrived Friday morning. I'm in New York. He's in Canada. I don't know how he does it, but he does it. And it's the same price. The shipping was the same price. Everything was the same price. There was no fooling around. Definitely worth it. And if you're in, if you're in Canada, he's the guy to go to. He's going to get everything that you thought you needed that you do need or you will need. Go to MaritimeKnifeSupply.com, and he's got something special going on. This is the reason why he's great. Lawrence has a scholarship, and the applicate for the New England School of Metalwork. It's a scholarship that can be applied. You can apply for it until December first. So you got to hustle. It's the Maritime Knife Supply uh, ABS Intro to Bladesmithing Scholarship, and it's open to people from 16 to 30 years old. Uh, definitely go to. Uh, there's a link in. The Maritime Knife Supply Instagram, but I'm sure if you went to the New England School of Metalwork, you can get that squared away. And for sure, for sure, for sure, you're talking about a guy who's into it. Lawrence Lake is definitely into it, and he's doing this for um, knife makers because he's a bladesmith too. I saw him forging. He knows what he's doing. Uh, I'm with you, MaritimeKnifeSupply.com. Definitely check out what he's got. And if you're, not sure, if you're in Canada and you think, well, he doesn't have this, Tell him. He'll get it. I'm, I'm telling you. He's a smart guy. So MaritimeKnifeSupply.com. Uh, I want to thank my friends Sam and Jeff over at the Stable Rail Knife Finishing Vice. They're makers of the Stable Rail Knife Finishing Vice at TrojanHorse.com, Trojan Horse Forge. Their vices are built in the heart of Texas, and they will take your handle scale, handle finishing to a whole new level. You know, not only just your handle finishing scale, the, the handle, but your your blade too. You, they have plates that bolt on. It holds your knife. Depend doesn't matter what kind of knife you have. An integral bolster, a hidden tang, full tang. You have complex curves. It will support and hold your uh, knife comfortably, so you can hand sand it perfectly. Every one of my knives goes on that uh, the stable rail knife finishing vice twice. Once to to hand sand, and on the other do the handle. So if you go to TrojanHorseForge.com, you put in the promo code FULLBLAST10, you're going to get 10% off everything. 10% off the handle press attachment, which thing is sweet. The handle press attachment fits into your Trojan Horse Forge so you can uh, glue up and hold your knife safely and straight and comfortably, and it is awesome. And their T4 Sentinel Oil is dynamite stuff too. And if you wanted to be an um, affiliate, reach out to them, get a case, and then you can you can be an affiliate for them, make a couple extra bucks. So go to TrojanHorseForge.com, put in the promo code FULLBLAST10, you get 10% off, and they have payment plans too. So get check it out. Check it out. Thank you to my boys over there, Treasurer's Forge. Next is BiggerForge.com. I just whipped out some copper mascus. Man, you can't make it you can't you can't make something so complex so easily like the stuff at Bigger Forge and Tool. And I'll tell you what, I'm always impressed. Koi sends me some stuff. Every time I've never had I've never seen delaminations. I've never seen problems. I've never been like, oh, the core's not in the middle. Oh, no, no, no. Stuff is awesome. Uh, the bronze my tiger my copper my all that stuff. It's all visually stunning stuff, and it's easy to use. You can use your table. You can use your uh, bandsaw to cut it. Uh, I mean, not one of them shitty ones. <laughs> I mean, you can't have one of them, you know, gr grandpa's old, you know, uh, Black and Decker that we use for cutting uh, plywood. That ain't gonna do it. But uh, you get yourself a porta band or a grinder. You could use a right angle grinder. Get yourself squared away. It's super easy to use. It's super duper easy to heat treat. It looks great. Finishes awesome. And if you use that gator piss, boy, you're gonna make it look great. I love this gator piss. 
and it is their proprietary etchant. That stuff is awesome. And the funniest part is, is people like, you know, serious knife makers who charge serious dollar amounts also take themselves a little bit too seriously. And they say stuff like, well, I don't like Gator Piss. I don't like the name. But they have it. So that's the difference. You can talk the talk. You can walk the walk. But I've had some of the best knife makers in the game. They'll make, oh, I don't like this stuff. And they have it. So if they have it and they don't like it, the name, that's on them. But the, trust me, they're using it. So get yourself some of that Gator Piss. And if you go to BakerForge.com, put in the promo code, full blast, you can get 10% off. And if you're in Europe, go to DIYEurope.eu, get yourself some of that Gator Piss, and uh, you're going to be in business. You know what I'm saying? Uh, many thanks to Koi. We're going to get him on sooner rather than later. He's busy. Watch him on Instagram. Go check out Baker Forge, Baker Forge and Tool on Instagram. Definitely worth it. I want to thank my friends at Total Boat. We're mixing up some Total Boat right now. We're making the using their two-part epoxy. It's marine grade. They make marine grade stuff. They have poly, they have adhesive, paints, primers, polishing compounds, but they also have two-part epoxy that is great stuff. If you're putting together some handle scales, you're slapping on a, a hidden tang knife. You need something with some uh, uh, some uh, good good stuff. Get yourself some of that Total Boat. And you go to totalboat.com slash full blast and you check out what they got going on. I just got a stack of stuff from my friends at GL, Hanson & Sons. I got the Hoopla. The Hoopla might be my favorite of all of his G Carta. It is really dynamite stuff. It is uh, cross cut. He makes these. I, was, I had some chefs from... Uh, Stone Barnes at the shop. Big name drop right there, ladies and germs. That's how you do a name drop. They were just in the shop, and they were looking at my stuff, and they were looking at the hoopla, and I explained what it was. And I explained it. I said, wow, this is like, you know, they make a loaf of fabrics and, and uh, different colors, and they use uh, heat, and they use, uh, they use pressure, and they make this giant loaf. And then they cut the cross cut of the loaf, and then they make these scales, and their stuff is dynamite. So he just sent me some... Uh, uh, he sent me some of my favorite, which is Hoopla. Hoopla is my favorite. I use a lot of it. The Colorama by Mikey is really cool. The Pheasant, the Ripple Cut by uh, Tuxini, Mahi Mahi, Radio Room, Jakarta. Jakarta, the stuff's got such razzle-dazzle, and it really is easy to work with. Uh, I would highly suggest getting some of that. And you can get the variant of the Hoopla that I named Electric Fuzz. So go to Jakarta dot bigcartel.com get yourself some of that razzle dazzle in your life you know what i'm saying and then last but not least my boys at tormek they did it again they're celebrating 50 years congratulations of being in business and they made the black th sharpening system their water cooled sharpening systems have saved my life they made me a better knife maker um it's they're really easy to use you can use jigs or you can go jigless no problem with that go to tormek.com check out what they have or you can go to tormek underscore sharpening on IG. And the last but not least, I want to say this. This is cross promotion, ladies and germs. This is coming out on Friday, Saturday the 18th. Knife Talk is doing a live event. We are hosting the Damasteel uh, uh, Chef Knife Invitational. And it, if you go to damasteel.se, you can register free. And there's going to be tons of knife makers, and you can virtually. Uh, interact with the show. You can listen to Knife Talk. You can also 
meet other knife makers. I know Fingal Ferguson is going to be there and a lot of knife makers that you know. So go to damasteel.se, register for free. They're not nothing. They're not asking for anything. And it's a really awesome event. You can interact with these guys. You can watch uh, Knife Talk, and, and uh, it's definitely worth it. So check out that this coming Saturday, I think the 18th, for sure, 100%. Next is my guest. Thomas Nugent is a really interesting character. I had a really good time meeting him at Maker Camp. He's got an awesome story. I he's an he's he's a hard working guy. I'm really glad he's here. Tom, how the hell are you? I'm good. I'm really good. I really appreciate you having me on here too. You're a fascinating guy, and I'll tell you why. I've been watching you from the beginning, and it is one of the hardest things. I feel very guilty. I feel very guilty about a lot of things. A lot of things I feel guilty on is I feel like knife talk has given people the the feelings that it is easy to make money making knives and you get a lot of guys who will stop their job or change jobs and become knife makers and a lot of guys i talked to noah vashon he says there's a lot of people selling their equipment you know after a couple months and stuff like that i give you a lot of credit because you are one of the hardest working young buck knife makers in the game right now and it is it is a real honor to talk to you because you got a lot of hustle thanks man it's a it's a lot of drive and i think a lot of people at times have like a misconception going into it that all you have to do is just make more knives than you make money and there's a, a whole lot more that goes into running a business especially something of like selling hard goods like knives where there really isn't that much of a markup as is yeah well it, it it's weird because you know there's this strange there's this strange delineation. By the way, Tom has a company called Knives by Nuge. I'm going to have it linked in the in the show notes, and we're going to go all about it. the The interesting thing is, with there's this there's this total separation between this concept between art and craft, but also they don't throw in business. Like there's art, there's craft, and then the, there's business. It's almost three different things. And there's this like feeling as though you're told that you can learn how to do something, you enjoy doing it, and then all of a sudden the money just starts rolling in. And, and I feel guilty that Knife Talk has made a lot of people think like, oh, this is like the gold, this is like the, the gold rush. <laughs> and and everybody just get their shovels and find the nearest stream and start panning for gold. Yeah, uh, there's a lot more that goes into it than just like you know, like we said. Like it's not as easy as just making the knives. You also have to sell them. You also have to market them. There's also this little thing called like taxes you got to worry about too. Right. And it's like there's so many people just worry about the end product and not so much of the actually how to sell it. Which is why I love the conversation you had with Brian House last week because he's a guy that I look up to a lot too. Because he he says it all the time. Like you need to spend just as much time like selling the product as you do making it. And I think at times makers get so obsessed with the process of making instead of also the process of selling and, you know, trying to pay your mortgage because that's kind of important too. Yeah. Well, I, I listened to uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger was on the Howard Stern a couple weeks ago. I think he's promoting a book, a self-help book, which is like everyone's just like, Ugh, yeah, that's just what I need, a fucking self-help book from Arnold Schwarzenegger. And one of the interesting things he said was, the difference between him and a lot of actors back in the you know the 80s was most of these actors would not promote the movies and they wouldn't go out of their way to try to get people to go to the movies 
And he says, one of the things that I learned, I guess when he came to the United States, he started doing like a, I guess they were doing a, he started a roofing company and all of his, all the guys in the roofing company were all, uh, they were all um, bodybuilders. Sorry, there's a, there's a leaf blower going in the background. The guys are blowing leaves. But he started this body, this bodybuilding uh, company filled with, uh, I mean, a roofing company filled with bodybuilders. And what happened was he started to realize that he needed to learn business and marketing in order for, for um, things to work. So when he started doing movies, he said, well, I'm going to go on these shows and I'm going to do everything I can to make sure the money that the, the movie does well. If the movie does well, then I'll do all do well. And he really was one of the best at selling a movie. And the f interesting thing was he said a lot of these artist types or craftsmen or whatever, they're, or actors in, the, in his regard, he's unwilling to put in the work that it takes in order to sell the product that they're selling. Like he found like these guys were just like too good to do it. Well, I noticed a lot of that even from doing local shows and stuff like that, like maker shows, other events like that, where we're selling. Like I'm always standing behind the table. I'm personable. I'm looking people in the eyes, talking to them. And then a lot of other people, they're just like hiding in the corner of the booth and just expecting their work to right. sell itself. And sure, I'm sure it can at times, but like how much more could you move and sell if you were actually like showing your passion and sharing it with them? Because then it gets them excited about all of it too. And even with like, you know, Arnold built such a hype around his movies, they weren't going to see the new like Commando movie. They're going to see the new Arnold movie because right. that's how he was promoting it. That's Well, I mean, that was, that was a big takeaway. And I think that there... I think a lot of it came from the fact that I know a lot of knife makers who they're, they're what they what they say to young knife makers is don't make what people want, make what you want, and the work should sell itself. And I hear that I used to hear that a lot from knife makers who say the work should sell itself. You shouldn't have to do all this. Eh, you shouldn't have to do all this, but at the same time, there's a lot of hope going around. And one of the things is I know so many of these guys, so many artists in general, not just knife makers, but artists in general, who are so goddamn talented. And they're filled with talent, but they don't have the drive. And I started to think about you a lot, and I, th I thought about, you know, your, you know, your rise and the things that you do. And your Instagram is always really good, and every morning you're doing something, and you're just, you're just looking at the camera in the eye, and... I, and I and I and I and I wonder if you take if you take drive drive is almost more important than talent because you can be creative people are creative I had creative ideas when I was younger but if I don't execute them then what the fucking doesn't even matter you know well you just need the persistence too with a lot of these things because it's I mean a lot of guys think that you're just gonna make a couple reels and then just like blow up and go viral but like I almost gave up on the whole trying to go viral and I rather just keep that consistent steady push and growth going with things and then also too like while doing that like keeping in touch with your customers and really interacting with them and I rather have that than like a big blow up because even like I was talking with my buddy and also he's been helping me out with all the business Nick at Black Flag Survival I'm like I want to just keep a steady push because I'm almost afraid if things get too big you know can you even keep up with the demand at that point which like right now like it's just me working so you almost don't want to get too big too fast and then have it all collapse down on you I, 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 I really truly believe in my heart that slow and steady wins the race and just being consistent is the most important thing. And you don't need to see monumental growth. You just need to see growth. And no, I, I, I think that, I think that that's, I think that number one, I think experience is underrated. I, I say that to the day I die. 
I meet um, just talking to. Uh, I had uh, these chefs in in uh, these chefs who came in and they were we were talking about serrated knives, and with a chef, he's an awesome chef, and he was saying to me, he's like, yeah, I tried I tried uh, I tried sharpening a serrated knife and it ruined it. And he says I was I was in my kitchen in my house I was using a Dremel, and I immediately knew what happened, and I said I bet I know what happened. And he says. I said, I think that you were holding the Dremel, and the Dremel just ran away on top of the knife. <laughs> you just start running away because that's what happens with the Dremel. Yeah. If you're not like super, I said, if you're not super steady and you have like a, re, you know, your elbows are an, an, you know, anchored down, and you're like holding it, and then you're moving it in one direction, it just starts, it touches down, and it's like it rolls off, rolls right off. He's like, yeah, that's exactly what happened. And I was like, yeah, well, I mean, you know, fucking done that a million times with the Dremel, like experience is underrated. And I said, if you would take that Dremel next time and then you clamp it to a table and then you kind of bump the knife against the Dremel bit if it's clamped well, that might make things easier for you. And it was just like, he just looked at me and I was just like, dude, you, you're an awesome chef. You're not a fabricator. You just, you know, and it's not your fault. It's just, you know, experience is underrated. And you, it's impossible to be good right out of the bat from with everything and there's this total expectation that everyone's going to be good right off the bat well no it takes a whole lot of screwing up and at least that's what i've learned from myself even with like you know from making the knives or even which model is going to be big because there's like i've got a pile of knives like blanks that just sit in my basement because you know i thought they were going to be good i mean they're great knives but like the market didn't really pick up on them and it's like you know i could kick my feet and just say, well, how great of a knife it is, but, you know, or I can move on to something that people actually want and, you know, kind of lick your wounds and move on because everything is just about, like, trying things out and figuring it out and getting those experiences and then, you know, hopefully having enough coin left in your pocket afterwards to keep moving on. I have a theory that I've been thinking about in regards to you, in regards to what you just said, but I want to I bring it back a little bit. How did you start in knife making? So it started uh, with actually a buddy that I trained jujitsu with. It was just one of those things. He was all about watching Walter Soros videos. Right. And he was just showing me that and showing what he wants to make. And he's like, you're pretty handy. You could probably do something like that. I'm like, yeah, I probably could, but do I want to? And he's like, I don't know. Come on. He bought a couple of things, bought the classic Harbor Freight, like one by 30 afterwards. And like, you know, just started running with it. And then, you know. I kept doing it. He had twins. So uh, the twins kind of got in the way of the hobbies. And I just kept running with it. And I would definitely say, like, I came up through Knife Talk, like, from online digital platforms of how to, you know, learn these things. Because I have zero training experience in using really any kind of power tools. Really? It's, it's I mean, even for my whole career, like, before that I was doing this full time, I was in law enforcement. And everything with that was trying to get into law enforcement. Even going to college was all based for that. Like, that was the goal to get onto. And not really doing that much work with my hands. I mean, I was always an outdoorsman, so that's different. But, like, not with, like, running power tools and stuff. That was all just stuff I absorbed off, like, online forums, researching everything, podcasts, and a lot of them. Wow. What, what, when you, when you were young, you did, I know that you did a lot of hunting and fishing and stuff like that. What, uh, would, would you, did a parent bring you involved, make you involved with that, or...? No, it was really actually the Boy Scouts. My parents are freaking, <laughs> it's actually funny. My dad is so useless with his hands. Um, it's funny because he's a metallurgical engineer 
And I'm pretty sure the only reason why he was so good at his job is because he went into the refineries after a fault happened and he was looking for where somebody half-assed something. I'm like, oh, that's why you're so good at your job because you know what you would have half-assed on this. Well, so, what, what, was, what did he actually do? I don't understand what he did. He would be inspecting pipes and welds and failures okay. and stuff like that on the oil rigs and everything. So wow. he was all over the place. But he would be looking for where somebody got lazy. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's why you're good at your job. But yeah, he had never really trained me up on anything. It was uh, a lot of the Boy Scouts that really got me into the outdoors. So was he flying to? Was he flying all over the place to inspect welds and stuff like that? Yeah, he was flying all over the place, uh, a lot in the Middle East. Um, he was actually on one of those lists for a while, which always got him to the front of the line. But what, uh, what do you mean? What list? Like a no fly list? He, well, he wasn't on the no fly list, but he was definitely on the extra pat down list for a while. Oh, really? Uh, because of a lot of the countries he had to travel oh, to. Oh, yeah, I'll bet. I'll so, bet. And they were like, oh, you're off doing an awful lot of flights over there, and you only got one briefcase on you, and they, you know. And he's like, look at me. He's like, I'm old, fat Irish guy. What do you think I'm doing over here? <laughs> like, it's like, I'm not, I'm not going to be causing any problems for you guys. But he didn't care because he got to the front of the line every time. Wow. So he would go and, and just go on to the – would he sleep on the oil rigs? Yeah, so he would go there, stay there for a couple weeks, and uh, – that was like towards later on in his career. For a while, he grew up working for uh, Conoco Phillips and Phillips sixty six or whatever it was. It's changed name like eighty times. He's you know it was one of those jobs that he worked his whole entire life there, and then started doing a little more freelance work where he would travel all over the place. And how did they get you to the oil rig? I have no idea. That's that was all. I think they would either take him out on a boat or they fly him out there a couple times on helicopters. And, you know, he would have to do all that work. And a lot of times, too, it was land-based as well in the certain countries where it wasn't always on oil rig. But it just depends on where the client had to get him to. He definitely had some interesting stories, some so of was which he, I didn't always he, believe. Did he, was he hired as he independent, an independent inspector? Or was he, he had to work for a company that would just send him all over the place? So originally he started working for like ConocoPhillips and that's who he was always working for, like the oil refineries in New Jersey. They actually, you know, back in the day, these companies actually went and paid for you to go to school. That's, he got plucked up right out of high school. They're like, hey, do you want to be an engineer? And he's like, no. He's like, well, what if we pay for you to go to college and be an engineer for us? He's like, well, okay, sure. Wow. Yeah, crazy, right? Um, And so then he worked for them for about 20 plus years and then he started doing his own freelance work. Wow. So when he would, how long, what was the longest he would be away for? A couple months at a time. Whoa, that's, that's gotta be tough. Well, I mean, I was a little bit older at that point and I okay. mean, yeah, we were all kind of like taking care of ourselves at that point. So it didn't really matter too much. I think he enjoyed the time away from all the madness at the house. Cause we had four boys in our house. So oh it was just God. kind of, oh, a, yeah. yeah, it was a riot. My mom tried for one daughter with the last one then got blessed with another boy. So it was oh, a it was she, a ruckus. She must have been like, "Oh God, he's gonna go inspect those welds, and I got to deal with these kids." Yeah, there's a reason why every dog in the house was always a female. She needed at least some kind of female in the house because it was just four <laughs> guys like me just running all over the place causing mayhem. So, did, what got you into the Boy Scouts? So, my older brother did it for a while, and I've always was like, it's just like I don't know, you know, like one of those weird things where you just start to click with stuff and you just yeah. really start to notice that this is like something I want to do. And two, it like my dad, you know, he's a great guy, but he wasn't always the best uh, role model per se. Okay. Um, and 
going there, it actually gave me like a really good, like positive male role models to look up to. Even like where my business sense comes from, our scout leader for the longest time, he worked for IBM and he would be teaching us how to run the scout troop like a business Hmm. and give it us the accountability. I mean, even the entire troop itself, it was always scout run where we would come up with all the ideas. We'd plan all the trips, obviously like booking stuff and everything was left to the adults and they would also listen into our planning and, you know, every now and then be like, Oh, we should do a paintball trip. And then you just hear across the room saying no. And I'm like, okay, scratch that. But that's fair. Everything was like scout run, which was nice because then you actually got to like, you know, have that little accountability. And I think that's also what helped me out in the future because even one thing that I always remember from him is he would talk about like there's the with just the running a business or running a troop or everything else. There's the me picture, there's the us picture, and then there's the big picture. And he's like, everybody can see the me. Only a couple of people could see the group picture and then only a select few can see the big picture. And like, it's those kind of lessons that I still carry with me now. Huh. Well, I would imagine that it's very rewarding when an adult and probably even more rewarding when it is not your parent is giving you responsibilities. So like when a lot of kids are together and you become friends and stuff like that, and then they start to, you, you bond, but then these adults are giving you responsibilities that they're not your parents and they're not, there's not really favoritism. That That's very rewarding. And it's like, it's just enough room that you could go and you can make your own mistakes because that's very important too is uh, let the kids make the mistakes and learn right. from them, but not enough that you're going to like end up with like, you know, missing limbs and stuff like that. Right. So how did you get involved with hunting? Did Boy Scouts do hunting? No, uh, that was really got me into camping and everything and being in the outdoors. It was really... Okay going and working at different places, you know, just college jobs. I ended up getting a job at like a Dick Sporting Goods, just some like bullshit job for beer money and everything. Right. And then when I was working there, I started hanging out with guys who did a whole lot more hunting and fishing. And then it just, you know, just spiraled into that where we were like, you know, buying new gear, trying things out. And I had a lot of good, I made a lot of good friends that taught me a lot because I didn't really have any experience with all of that. So they kind of took me under their wing. And then what made you want to go into law enforcement? Because that's kind of like a big departure from from Dick's. Well, yeah, Dick's wasn't the end goal career. <laughs> I mean, that's not like, I don't see that. I see like there might be a, a missing step between yeah. Dick's and law enforcement. Yeah, like I said, beer money during college. But uh, actually, when I was like 16, I became an EMT. And wow. so uh, I was uh, working EMS for a long time, volunteer. And uh I did that all the way up through college and then I kind of like stopped because I got a job doing the same exact thing where I got paid instead of volunteering. So I was like, all right, I'm kind of done with this. Um, But yeah, I was working on the ambulance corps for a long time and I would always see the cops there. And I was like, you know, I already like doing this. I like, you know, this whole environment, you know, they're sure the adrenaline part, but also times like just helping people out because those are some of the stories and like memories that I always keep with me. Um, and I'm like, oh, I can get a job doing this. That sounds pretty cool. Do you think that? I, so, all right. So basically, it all comes from the Boy Scouts. Yeah, essentially. I mean, I mean that the whole idea behind Boy Scouts is being helpful. Ultimately, ultimately, it's being organized, and being helpful. I would imagine at 16, it was pretty. It was a. So you were an EMT riding on ambulances. Yeah. What was the first ambulance call like? Were you? terrified nervous as shit i bet tell me about it (laughs) it it was uh there was a but it's like a lot of them the nerves kind of got kicked away pretty fast um because i mean 
there was like one call where I was, I think I was like, yeah, I was probably just been doing it for about like six months. Cause most of the time I like, it was suburban New Jersey. It wasn't anything too crazy. Right. And heart attacks, heart attacks and yeah. And even those though, are like, you know, a lot of times it was like taking the person from the nursing home to the hospital. It's like, wasn't that crazy. Yeah. But like there was one where it's like, and things got a little bit easier after this one. But there was a guy, he was having a heart attack. He was an older gentleman. And like, you know, we're doing CPR and everything. And all of a sudden, I just hear someone out of the corner of the room just go like, hey, Nuge. And I'm like, what? And I kind of look and turn. And it's my buddy's mom. And I'm like, what? It just like made you like stop. Wow. And luckily, the guy I uh, who was the crew chief, he was a very rough and gruff kind of guy. He was the man. He was just the right guy for the position, too. And he kind of, you know, gave me the snap the fuck out of it. And yeah. I was like, oh, Don't talk yeah. to her. Yeah. Well, exactly. It's like, we still got a job to do. Unless you're going to give her mouth to mouth. Don't talk yeah. to her. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know with her, maybe. <laughs> but uh, sorry, yeah. I don't think Halpern's listening to this. He won't hear me talk about don't his mom. Don't worry but about then that. the worst part, though, is like, you know, is this guy's, it was my buddy's grandpa that we were working on. And then the next day I had to like sit next to him in bio class. And that was, uh, that was not fun. How it's did like, they, how did they let you be EMT at 16? I don't know. They need numbers. Is that, but, are, you, are you kidding me? No. I mean, at that point too, like even like with me working like, uh, in old Japan, that's where my previous uh, job was. They, uh, they had a lot of young people working on the crew and, you know, they all have those moments like that too, where it's like, you learn fast that this is sometimes you need can take your time and sometimes you need to you need to really go fast. Hmm. Oh, so. I, I I can only imagine that the EMT work that you did really made getting into law enforcement a little. I mean, I'm just being I'm imagining. I would imagine that it was a, it made the transition a little bit easier. Yeah, it definitely solidified it. And also, I kind of had like a baseline for being able to do these kind of things a little bit easier. And like, you know, it's just rapidly processing thoughts and trying to work fast. So you went to college and then you applied to be in law enforcement in New Jersey? Yeah. So I uh, went and at the time, uh, because right now it's a little bit easier to get on as a cop than it was when I was trying to get on. Um, I actually had to put myself through the police academy and you had to apply for that. So I had to apply and get in and, you know, rank against a bunch of other people to get into the academy, which then I had to pay for. And then, so I was, did that for about seven months without a paycheck. So Sally Mae was not happy about that one because yeah. they, they were not getting their checks. Um, but then after that, I got hired down in Glen Ridge, New Jersey, which is sort of like by Essex County, like Newark and East Orange and stuff like that. Okay. So that was a nice area. And it was kind of good to start there because it was very diverse because the town itself was, you know, very suburban, but then surrounded by very urban. So you got a little taste of everything, which was huh. fun. Did you, did you enjoy law enforcement? I, you know what? I enjoyed the work. I did not enjoy everything else with I it. Bet. There's, there is, you know, you can imagine 16 year old me being like, oh, this is what I should do. This looks great. And then not seeing all the stuff behind it. Right. Like the bureaucracy, the paperwork, the stuff that makes absolutely no sense. And there's, you, as you can imagine working for the government, there's a whole lot of that going on. Hmm. I can't and, imagine. I have no idea. I just... I just know what my wife works in a hospital and I know what she deals with. And I just, 
And I guess I have this overwhelming feeling of it's never going to stop. I had this, when I was in the restaurant game, I was the general manager of the restaurant, and my nightmares were I was being, I was tied down on a beach and the waves just kept crashing over me. But the waves were the customers. And then all of a sudden it went for the door was open and just waves of customer and there's never any, there's never any reprieve. There's never any stopping. There's never any. And it was like I was overwhelmed by the humanity, frankly. So I can only imagine that she goes through the same thing. I can only imagine with you going, being an EMT and then getting into law enforcement that, and you're just, you're thrown into these moments of people i know people at their worst you have to be at you you have to be your best against people who are on their worst and i just i just you know i commend you for you know being around to do it well that was always one of the toughest things to deal with because as you can imagine you can see a lot of stuff that really uh you know it really gets you going and you really have to pump the brakes and you also need good people to look out for you because sometimes, like, you know, there's days where you need to, like, tell somebody else, even if they're senior, like, hey, you need to you need to walk out of the room because hmm. we could all tell that you're getting heated and you need to, like, look out for each other and stuff like that. Because, I mean, I could I could think of countless times where, like, you know, there were situations and things you would see where it's just like, where was the humanity when that person was acting the way they did? Right. And, you know you would want to deal out your own justice, but they're like, nope, nope, reel it back because, you know, everything. And it's like, it's tough because it's human nature to see something like that and want to help somebody out. And then too, it's just like, it gets you on all your emotions. And you then you throw in it being like three in the morning, you're exhausted, you're on your like your eighth cup of coffee. Oh, and, <laughs> yeah. God. I do not miss night shifts one bit. Tell me about your first night shift. Sh- when they told you you're doing it, do you get a choice of whether you're going to do a night shift or not, or they tell you you're going to do a tour of night shifts? So it depends on the department. And like my previous one, uh, we switched every two weeks, which was just, it was terrible. Because you would do two weeks oh, of day shift and then get, two weeks of night shifts. How do you get? How do you? How do you switch back and forth? You don't. <laughs> you don't. You just don't. You just. It's your like. Laura, my girlfriend, would tell me like on day three of a night shift in a row, I just like would look green in the face by the time I get back because your body and your circadian rhythm is just so thrown off. And I think too for people that work in like offices or hospitals and everything, they have at least light. And for me, I'm in the dark all night long by myself. So like your body is saying, all right, it's time to go to bed. And then here you are having another like monster energy blowing up your heart. Oh my God. How many, how long would, what's a tour? Like a 12 hour short, like a 12 hour shift. Oh, okay. So how many days a week would you work on? It would depend on the week. Some weeks would be like five and then others were two. So that wasn't that bad of a schedule, but, um, it at you know doing that job though you don't you don't know what days are anymore right. like people are like oh it's friday i'm like what it's like you know for me it's my monday because i'm yeah. just starting my weekend shift so like you kind of just you know everything just got blended into one big blur i i uh i have friends who are in law enforcement here in my town and i just like i love talking with them because they're just sometimes they're just dead <laughs> one guy sent me a one guy, one friend of mine, he's in a canine guy, and he sent me a message at like three o'clock in the morning. He says, Are you at the shop? And I went, No, of course I'm not at the shop. He's like, Well, I'm not too far from your shop. I thought I'd stop by. I'm like, dude, I'm not it's three o'clock in the morning. I'm not awake. I'm asleep. Yeah. So, I would have a so, oh, sorry of, about that. I forgot about that. 
a bunch of buddies that were always night owls. They knew if they wanted to call and bullshit with somebody that I'd probably be awake on my phone. And uh, now I'm in bed by like 9.30 at night or falling asleep on the couch. And it's, I, I love it. What, uh, so what made you decide, so at what point did you start the knife making? You were still in law enforcement. I think it was like around 2019. I, you know, I wasn't really making knives. I was more like making shivs. Um, that's kind of what they looked like when they were all done. So they weren't, they weren't as good looking. Um, but that was around 2019. They really started seriously picking up around, I would say like 2021, um, is when things really got serious about it. And I was like, all right, maybe this actually can turn into a business. And just the way like the career was going and with, you know, my aspects on it and everything, it was like, we were getting more and more responsibilities and our pay was actually going down, right. which is not normally how jobs are supposed to work. You'd be surprised. I'd uh, be surprised. <laughs> I hear that shit all the time. And you're like, you know, and here I am like making just as much money working in my garage. So I'm like, what am I doing here? And then I started crunching the numbers, looking at what I would actually need to get by and what I would be happy with. And I'm like, uh, I don't really need that much. I've already got everything kind of like set up. And I'm like, you know, then really came like 2021, it started getting serious. And then just this past January, I finally, you know, put in my papers. I was like, oh, I'm done with this. And and how does it and how does it feel? Was it nervous? Were you nervous? I mean, yeah, obviously, you know, government jobs. It's it's a obviously it's a paycheck, and you have this ability to. And I would imagine for you, I'm not saying it's easy, but you since you were 16, you were doing the same. I don't know how old you are. I'm imagining your early 20, mid 20s, or something like that. I would imagine that you had a a real like almost like a a callus to the work. Like you had, you had, you, you'd already, the blister was broken and now you're used to this kind of dealing with the public and in, in these situations, it must've been a very hard transition going from a, these jobs. I mean, since we were 16 to saying, okay, now I'm going to be making all this stuff out of my garage. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm nervous every day about all of this. Cause like it's, I mean, you're running your own business. Nothing is guaranteed. At least there you knew you had a paycheck every two weeks and benefits, which was nice. But even with that, though, like how things are going, I, <laughs> my neighbor, he's a paramedic and he also works for a lot of the uh, Marshall Task Force and do a lot of like warrant hits and everything. And he just took his use of force. And the lady even said, like, pretty much like if you have to use any kind of force, like get ready for litigation. Like, wait, 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 wait. You have to back up. What does that mean? What? Use of force? Yeah. Like if you have to go hands on with somebody, fight somebody, discharge your weapon or something like that. And this was a lady from the AG's office, which pretty much was saying the attorney general yeah. um, was pretty much along the lines of like, get ready for litigation because you're now guilty until proven innocent in this career, at least in this state. Hmm. And so it's like, and then we would look around and we're like, so is this job really even that secure anymore? Right. Because like, if you have to defend yourself or to defend somebody else, or even at sometimes like do the job that you were hired to do. And now you're going to have to fight for your innocence. It's kind of like, oh no, it's a little backwards. But that's also in medical too, because like, you know, I remember talking to my wife and she says, my biggest fear is I'll have to like resuscitate someone out, you know, you know, in the street. And if something happens, I can be sued. Yeah. And there, there are all sorts of instances of like, you know, even people in hospital where uh, people in medical in hospitals doing their job and something doesn't go right. And all of a sudden they're named in a lawsuit. It's the, and the hospital may, may not, may or may not back you up. It's just like, 
you wonder, you're just like, you put all this time, you put all this energy, you put all this education, you put all this stress. I'm sure you've lost years of your life of stress. And then all of a sudden, when it comes down to it, it's just like, I got only me to work to do. I got only me to support, you know, or me to who, who will support myself. Yeah, it's, I mean, it just, people have this idea of security that I don't think is really there. And I mean, because everybody thinks they're like, guaranteed like this job and this pension or even if it's like a normal career that you're working everybody thinks that everything's like going to just go down the plan and then you're going to hit 55 you're going to retire you're going to spend half your time in freaking florida at the villages doing god knows what and that's not always that's not always the case don't gloss over the villages Oh, God. It's a. Uh, Don't that's gloss a- over the villages. Guys, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to have to listen to an old episode. The villages is. I guess is the, My parents got a place down there now, and I'm kind of concerned. It's the. Apparently, the villages is one, one of the. And, you know, obviously, I don't know about anything, but I read, and I had it on. Uh, when I had Ben on, Ben Snore on, we were talking about weird stories. I guess it's like this. The. The. Um, the STD capital of Florida. This is the <laughs> villages. It's these old people all bumping uglies. <laughs> they get oh, got nothing of... else to do but drink and bump uglies, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And play golf. So, God bless you. You turn 50 and you head right down to the villages. You know what you're doing. You know about but, the loofahs, right? No. What uh, the, you, 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 mean the the you mean the loofahs? You mean the things you you scratch your back with in the in the shower? Yeah, sure. But So they have a code system down there. Go ahead. And... I just found out about this from my parents when we first went oh, there. Just geez. and the so, parents. Go and ahead. you could, uh, God, yeah, don't don't make me think those thoughts. Um, <laughs> no problem. But so there's a chart you could look up online, and yeah. it's uh, they have six different color variations of the loofahs that you put on top of your golf cart, and the loofah is like the sign that you're a swinger, but the different colors are different levels of what type of swinger you are. Oh my. Where like I think like teal is like, hey, go easy on me. I'm just starting to get into this. And then black is like, let's get weird. And then <laughs> there's one guy we were stopping at a Publix and God bless his heart. He was in one of those electric wheelchairs with his classic Vietnam vet hat on. Yeah. And he had all six loofahs on his wheelchair. He getting he getting busy. Hey, God vets, bless. Vets are entitled, aren't they? Aren't yeah. they entitled to have a little fun in their life? Have a good life, especially at the end of it like that. But I'm like, God damn, this man is getting down. I don't know. Just, or maybe. or not. Who knows? <laughs> maybe he's getting down. Who knows? <laughs> he was but trying I, to. At least he had every loofah saying, whatever you are, bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I would imagine, I remember when you posted and said that you just put your papers in and you're now full time. And that was really a cool moment because it was really like, I was just like applauding you from, you know, from where I was being like, God damn, that is awesome. I remember when you wrote that I just quit my job and I'm a full-time knife maker. And it was like, it's scary. And at the same time, I, I one of the things about your knives, they're very bushcraft oriented, outdoors oriented. And where did you come up with your signature style? <sighs> I have no idea. So it's, I think too, it's like just from a lot of use and a lot of, I think too, some people try to design a knife that's cool instead of designing a knife used for a task. And a lot of my knives are all like task oriented. Like what would I be using this for? Why am I making this knife? And there's certain models that I do a lot where it's just like, 
they're kind of like a universal fit, like a kind of dual, which like it starts some of them, like the Wicked is probably, I mean, I joke around that I'm Wicked by Nuge at this point because that seems to all I make. But it's a universal knife where it was originally meant for outdoorsmen, fishermen, hunters and stuff. And then like the EDC community picked it up, which like I'm not going to say no to that. Right. But I definitely didn't design it to be an EDC knife. And then even other knives, they just because like you're designing it, the tool and you're focusing on the tool and task is for it's then going to carry over into other tasks. Do you think when you design these, you had a little bit of, cause I mean, I know I have a f- few friends in law enforcement and then they want specific knives. And I wonder if you, any of your law enforcement experience in terms of like, I know what you guys have to carry the kitchen sink around with you every day. Did, did you ever think about how a person carries stuff as a police officer, law enforcement, do you think about like those days just like I didn't need this or that was too big or that's that's out of the way or because one of the things about your knives is a lot of them you make a XL and you make a small. And when I was looking at some of the the sizing, I was just like, that's a two inch blade. That is tiny. And all I could think of is he's obviously he knows he he has understands about carrying stuff. Well, with uh, even law enforcement specifically, I made two different uh, lines that are similar to each other, but different. And it's this same kind of basis where like, I have like a smaller and a bigger one. One of them just happens to have like those karamba rings on it, but it's not for like the Doug Micarta kind of crazy stuff. It's, right. I designed it with a guy I went to the academy with who actually, uh, he got shot in the head. He's still here. Um, but the guy was on top of his hips, so he couldn't access his firearm. And he was on the bottom of him, and the guy had his, uh, what's called his firearm right in his waistband over his groin. So he ended up taking a round to the head, and what he wanted as a design was something that could be worn very tight to a plate carrier or his vest or a belt or something like that, where somebody's not going to have access to it easily, but just to create distance. But at the same time, he wanted a knife that wasn't like just a knife fighting tool because he's also on the job. I mean, the first day he used it, he actually used it on a guy in uh, the street who was having a heart attack in the winter in Jersey City. So he had like every single layer on possible and he just used it to take off the clothes like a zipper and then get the pads on his chest. So like I wanted to make something that was carryable, defensive, but also could actually be used for all the other ridiculous tasks that you're using your knife for on a daily basis. Hmm. Yeah, then, I, I, go ahead. Well, I made another one off of that because I had guys on like SWAT teams and stuff who wanted just a bigger knife because they're most of the time wearing gloves. So, and they didn't want the little ring to put their hand in and they right. wanted something to fill up the hand a bit more. And I'm like, so I had to design two around different carriers where like the guys on the teams and everything, they're wearing the big like battle belt and everything else. And they're not, they're not doing like field interviews like I was doing where that knife could be hanging out in their belt and just out there easy to grab. Sure. Cause they're not getting up close and personal with people right. where me, where I was like doing field interviews and stops with people. I wanted that thing where it's accessible to me, but not bet. MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly. When you place your first wager at bet MGM, simply download the bet MGM app and sign up using code champion 150. Then, 
Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody else around me. Hmm. So I'm convinced. I think I love, I love talking to knife makers. Because I'm convinced, you know, because we talk about whether or not something's original or something's where, where things come from. And I always think that everything comes from people's past. Everything comes from something that they remember or something that they would use or need in general. And so I, in my mind, always, I always, you know, you're, the neck knives you do and the wickets and, the, and those, and even those, we got to talk about your fishing knives. So I, I, I've been trying <laughs> to pull, I want to pull the trigger on some, one of them at some point soon. But I feel as though that there's definitely like, you're someone who didn't just learn how to do this by watching a Walter Sorrell's video. You have like real world experience in terms of, you know, using knives, either bushcraft or hunting or fishing or even law enforcement. Well, I think that's like, you know, you talk a lot about experience and that's what it really goes behind all of it is all yeah. those experience from actually doing those kind of things. I don't have the manufacturing or metalworking or any of that kind of experience, but I have the use of the tool. So you almost know what you want and what you want to see. And then now I had to figure out the whole putting that actually, you know, pen to paper and making that actually happen. Well, that, see, that was, I wonder how hard that was to make the transition of never working with tools before to, because you do volume, you do much more volume than someone who's, I mean, you've only been doing it for a couple of years. You have made the decision to kind of do more volume. I know you work with uh, New Jersey Steel Bear and those guys are great. Uh, I, by the way, I, uh, I rattled Jerry's cage on Friday. It's just a little, that's a little insider. Some of the people are going to know and some people aren't going to know. I rattle, I enjoyfully rattled his cage on Friday. So I know you're very involved with those guys and the water jet services and stuff like that. So what made you come to the conclusion that I'm going to invest in the company by doing, you know, taking a lot of the labor out by doing volume? Well, it's, you really just look at the numbers and I've been spending a whole lot of time recently looking at my time. I've been timing myself for my processes. I know how much time goes into each model and how long, like grinds, assembly, handle material. And then it's like, you really start looking at margins and you're like, you know, you have to figure out where you could actually make your money. Cause right. some of the more intricate stuff that I do, like recently I did those uh, crazy Cerakote ones with the Hawaiian print on the knife and everything. Love them. Love those, those were fun. But I got hosed on my margins because things were just expensive. Right. I mean, the sheath wasn't cheap. And no. the Cerakote alone, I mean, the guy, he did eight different coatings. So that wasn't cheap. So, but then like I didn't, have, so they look cool and everything. And they really can express yourself with them and they're fun. But that's not really where you're going to end up making your money. And that's where the volume kind of comes in. Even doing some like CNC handle scales and stuff like that and outsourcing that where now I can have another guy using his CNC shop to create the scales. And then when they come into me, they're up to my spec. And then all I have to do is bolt them on. And I'm saving like a day of labor on an entire batch of knives, which yeah. is huge. 
because that's how you're actually going to make a profit. Well, but see, a lot of guys don't think that way. Yeah. And I, a lot of guys are, I mean, I, I do, I try to do, we've tried to figure out ways in which we can get scales done outside of the shop. And if you're listening to this, you're wondering what scales are. On a full tang knife, that's the knife, that's the knife where you see the entire silhouette in steel. And then there's two handles bolted together. They're referred to as scales. Um, the problem is, is what I want, I can't have other people do like if i if i want to do crazy colors or want to do kind of like composite stuff or or laminations it just don't work and i was talking to a cnc guy a good friend of mine who uh who'd been on this podcast before brie pettis and he told me that we, we crunch numbers in regards to how much it's going to cost and how much time and the fact that i like the g10 so much and stuff like that and he says you're going to have a better price if you on the labor you're going to have a better price if you do it with the labor. And it's unfortunately it's the case. Um, I give you a lot of credit for having the wherewithal to kind of uh, outsource a lot of that stuff because a lot of people are unwilling to do it. Well, I think a lot of people sometimes they're more in love with the process than they are the actual end product. Look at and you. that doesn't always transfer. Like I worked in outdoor shops for fucking years and the amount of knives I sold in that place, you know how many people asked me the exact type of steel in HRC when I was there? Zero. Zero. Yeah, you know what they zero. asked? Is this the rusty kind or the not rusty kind? <laughs> I'm surprised and, they even ask you that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. Most of the time, like, you know, they don't care. Most of the time they don't care. And I had a show recently down in Georgia, and I had some of the CNC ones, the fishing ones, and I had some I did by hand. And I'm like, well, which one's done by hand and which one's done by the CNC? And people always got it wrong. So I'm like, you know, and I don't know whether it's good or bad or by quality or not, but it's like, you know, they don't really care that much. At the end of the day, they just need the tool to work. And if I could get my prices down, which is always my goal, because like, you know, handmade knives are never going to be cheap. But if it's worth, if it's quality, people will spend on it. But also, I don't want to like you know, break people's wallets by just you know, charging too much. Uh, your prices are on the money. Your prices. I mean, I'm not going to say they're on their money. Your prices are more than fair. Yeah. Your prices are more than fair, and like, I just, you have a lot more. I, f- I felt as though you have a lot more experience than a lot of people. Now I have this theory. I was walking the dogs yesterday and I was, I, I, you know, this, I spent about a week figuring out what we're going to talk about. And I had this theory because I was looking at all your pictures of fishing and stuff like that. And I feel like there might be something that we both have in common in terms of, uh, this whole thing. What is it about fishing that you love? And this isn't a trick question. I'm just, I just kind of want to start talking. What is it about fishing and hunting that you love? It's, it's the memories you make, really. It's it's never really like that. Obviously, catching a big striper is awesome. Right. But I was just at my buddy's baby shower uh, yesterday, whatever that day that was. See, like, I'm bad with these things. Yeah. And he right. was one of those guys that really taught me the way and taught me everything else. And we were scrolling through old photos, and we were just looking at old videos and stuff like that. Me just being a goofball, I have no idea what I'm doing. Being a complete Guggen out there. And... He's the type of guy, that type of friendship that like you talk about so much more other than just like fishing while you're out there. And you also get to forget about all your life stresses for a while. And I mean, especially from the job I did, there weren't enough guys that did that. Their their stress relief wasn't like going out to the woods and being peaceful and slowing down and everything just being quiet. It was like going to a bar and drinking beers or something like that with other guys. And it's like, you know. That's not necessarily the best thing for your health, and it too doesn't really de-stress you that much. 
I wonder, because I feel as though years ago I started to do uh, these giant sculptures about fishing lures. And a part of me wondered, part of me wondered what was it about fishing that I loved. And I love fishing. And part of me came, to, after years of having, you know, doing these art shows and trying to figure out what this is all about, I really started to think about what is it about fishing, you know. And I started to realize that to me, fishing was more about the hope and expectation of what's going to happen. And what happens is, is you, you're going out and then you're, you're looking at your, you're looking at your tackle box and you're putting together your, 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 your line and you're putting everything together and you're looking at all these lures and you're looking at all the jigs and all the rubber worms and all that stuff and you're putting it all together. And you're getting ready for the next day with the expectation of you don't know what's going to happen. And what happens is, is over time with experience, you start to realize, all right, these are the kind of spots that are good or, or, or large fit, large mouth bass, like the, you know, the, the, uh, they like the, you know, uh, logs and stuff and they like this and they like that. And experience kind of teaches you, okay, I remember, you know, when we went walleye fishing, they like these rattle traps and they like the, this over here, they like a floating Rapala that is a shallow, whatever. And all of a sudden you start to kind of like, you start to realize, number one, it's hope. You're hoping. You never know what's going to happen. Like you could get nothing or you could get something. And the, it's the expectation of you're, you're trying to use your skills and your techniques and throw something out there and you're kind of hoping it's going to work. And then you amass all these lures and each lure is different and from different positions and different colors. And I remember the, the silver, the silver uh, spinners were for bright days and then the... the 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 brass spinners were for murky days and i i always just loved you know the experience and throwing all these different things out and a part of me thinks that as knife makers i feel as though you and i are on the same wavelength in terms of it's kind of the same thing with knife making where we're trying different things and we're trying different colors and we're trying different styles and we're trying trying different techniques and we're trying to catch a fish. It's funny that you say that because the whole time you're saying that, I'm like, yeah, it kind of sounds like running a business. I mean, am I wrong? This. No. Am I wrong? Because it's there's a lot of unknown, but there's also a lot of patterns that you could pick up and follow. Right. And too, like, you could, there's so much shit on the internet that you could find out about running a business, trends, sales, what to look into. That's like when you're not like doom scrolling reels, you could actually use to your advantage. And like I did the same thing with fishing and hunting where like I didn't – obviously my friends showed me the ropes and everything. But like I did a lot of research on my own to be able to figure out times, places, lore type, everything. And it's the same way with business where it's yeah. like you start to learn and like uh, – and also a lot of people put out a ton of free information on podcasts and stuff if you just listen to them. But you, you – know? but as a knife makers, we have a little bit more flexibility in terms of what we can do. Because you have the flexibility of, like, depending on how much you can actually do in your shop, you have the flexibility of saying, making, making changes and being flexible on the fly. Yeah. And the thing is, is, like, there is so much, like, fishing, the connection. And it, for me, it's been, like, crazy because my knives have looked like my sculpture forever. And I always think of them the same. I, like, I think of them the same. And then you make a lot of them. And I used to make these giant sculptures, and I couldn't make one. I couldn't make three. I had to make 50. And then they're all a little bit different, and maybe some will go, and maybe the law will go, or maybe one will stay, or you never know. And I feel the same way when I make 
the knives because I'm just like, ah, why not? Let's give it a try, see what happens. And, and sometimes and, throw it at the wall and see what sticks. Dude, sometimes throw out a spinner bait on a day that you never know what's going to happen, and then all of a sudden you get the big one. You know, you yeah. just and the, the 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 best part about fishing is there's hope, and then the more you do it, it's less hope. It's more experience. I had a when I was in college, I uh, the first sculpture I ever sold to was for a teacher. And he said that he'd give me $200 for this giant sculpture and I could fish on his property whenever I wanted. So my friends and I were like, this is perfect. We're in Ohio. Ohio's dynamite freshwater fishing. And this this pond never got fished before. So they were monster pan fishing there. Giant bluegills all the time. And my friends and I would go all the time. If, If we didn't have class or even if the bite was good, we would, you know, whatever. And I had this one friend, Mark Myers, who was just like, he, I don't understand, he knew everything about fishing. He knew he would catch muskies. He would catch walleye. He would catch, he had spent, he would send us pictures. He's had boats. And he, he just understood fishing, for, and he was a biology major. Now, 50, he's 50, he's my age. He's a professional, he's a, he's a professor, but he's also, uh, he does the bass fishing tours. He tours oh, all over. Awesome. He does get ranger boats, and he does. He just he understood it. His experience made he could. If with the three of us went fishing every time, he always would catch more than us. Yeah, doesn't matter the day. It's always that guy. The, doesn't matter the time. It doesn't matter the. We could be using the same lures. He always blew our doors off, no question. And if I really do feel like you, the fishing goes from the hope to. My experience tells me what's going to happen. And I feel as though with your work, that's the same case. I mean, you're throwing things out and the Cerakote with the with those uh, flowers on it and you're trying all these different <laughs> things. I feel like that connection with the fishing and the knife making is there. Well, it's just like, you know, you're always trying to look around the next bend. Right. And you always, you know, that's you could stay where you're at and try to pick everything up or you never know if something's going to be good down the next bend because i spent a lot of time up on the delaware river fly fishing up there and the whole time was like yeah you see a good run and you could spend all the time picking it apart or you could try a different spot and then who knows hammer it right away or have it be nothing you don't know until you try it how good is fly fishing oh it's great except for when everybody got locked inside and had days off during the week that's one of the only perks i loved about the old job is that I was off during the week and I could go fishing when nobody was out there. Oh. But it kind of, actually, that was one of the things that actually kind of pushed me into knife making more. Not going to lie, because I, I have spots everywhere. But I went with one of my coworkers and we were hiking up the Neversink River and we we're in this area that already a lot of people don't go to and the lot was filled on a Tuesday. And we just look at each other like, what the fuck? And we're like, all right, we hiked about two miles in and didn't even go down a trail. We just like bushwalked down to the river. We're like, all right, there's no way anybody's going to be here. And then lo and behold, after we're like done climbing through all the bushes, there's already two dudes in the water. And we both give each other like the what the hell look. And because they probably did the same exact thing we just did, trying to get away from everybody. And then I was like, you know, I I do all this fishing and everything to get away from people. And uh, it started turning into the exact opposite. So then I just started working in my garage more. And lo and behold, here I am. You never, do you ever, I would imagine you never go to Roscoe or rarely go to Roscoe. Not really. I mean, I kind of drive past it all the time. I never really go there. They they call it Trout Town, but there's better spots. Roscoe, New York is considered the trout capital of New York. 
And a few of my friends and I used to go every year, and we would get a uh, we would get a, a cabin, uh, and we would we would have a good time. One guy's a restaurateur, one's a designer, another artist, and we would have a great time. And we would, um, I loved it. And there were parts where you wouldn't find anyone, but then there was one spot that was right on, that was right off of a it was a the best spot of all we could hike through and not see anybody the best spot we'd always have was right at a rest stop uh, right off the uh, route six and it was a uh 617 or something like that and it was a um it was a rest stop and it was i know a, what was, you're, i know what you're talking about you know what there. i'm talking about right yeah. right before right before you get into roscoe proper yep, i've been there it's a, I mean, it's like, it's a killer spot. And it, for some reason, you're just like, don't matter how long you, you know, you try to get away from everybody, do you find this one goddamn spot where right by this rest stop and you're just like, everyone's there and everyone's killing it. Yep. Fishing is the best. I don't do it anymore. It's, you know, it's funny. I live across the street from a lake and I still barely have time to get out and go fishing. I don't know. You know what? For me, honestly, some of it's the, I, I like, I like, I loved it. But part of me is like the cruelty of it all. Ultimately, if you're doing catch and release, if you're eating it, that's one thing. But catch and release, it's just like, for what? Like all of a sudden, this poor fucking fish has got something in his mouth, and he's just like, I just, I don't know. There's something about it. I just was like, I, I've kind of getting, got off of it. But at the same time, like, I get it. I get it, and I love it. And I'll probably go again, but, and I was obsessed for a long time. I was really like, it was, it was part of like my, income was i was making these giant sculptures that started out the first one i did was after rapala in college and then i started making these monster lures all the time and they just started to evolve but i'm convinced that there's something it's that the hunting and fishing is definitely a sense of satisfaction against you know you're using your mind and you're using technique and then you're kind of you know, tricking for the most part, something that doesn't have an opinion or doesn't have, you know, it has instinct and that's it. It doesn't have like, you know, opinions or personalities. It has this, it has instinct and you're against this thing with like this scientific instinct. And I think that that's where the, uh, and it's your dedication and your, and your ability to outsmart something. I think it's also the failure. Yeah. I think because you also fail more often than not. I mean, I was just spent the whole weekend hunting and it was just a lot of sitting in the woods. Yeah. And but then it makes the success that much better by having those kind of trials and tribulations. If it was bang up time every time going out there, it wouldn't be the same. But don't you think that's the same with business? Well, yeah. And then once you start to figure it out, sure, it goes great. But then you also have to keep figuring it out because things will change. And it's always ever changing with all of this stuff. I mean, there's there's obviously like books and theories and everything else of what to follow, but you still have to kind of like get the dirt time in and figure it out on your own for what's going to work. So, do you are you getting a lot of repeat business or the majority of my customers are repeat customers, which has been great. And that's yeah. always like it's always a compliment if somebody's like, you know, right. they they think, "Oh, well, they must think this knife didn't suck that bad if they're buying another one." And I've got guys that are like, you know, they've within this year alone, they bought like 10 of my knives. And I'm like, what are you doing? And also, what do you do for a living? Can I that, get that job? Like, if you're just buying 10 of these things? I used to do that all the time. I would talk to my business partner. I'm like, what is wrong with this guy? Why does he keep buying them? And, and my, my partner would be like, oh, obviously, he has no idea what he's 
talking about. Re- the repeat customer really is something that is remarkable because ultimately a knife is not, you know, an iron lung. You know, it's not yeah. something that you really truly need. So like like the culinary knife game is great because, you know, obviously you have uh, you have more your your demographic is larger, way larger. But the interesting thing is is when people buy a knife, they don't as much as we talk about it on a knife talk or talk with other knife makers, they buy the knife, they use the knife and they don't think about the knife. No one's really spending time and energy thinking about not only their object but the person that made it. So somebody might just buy your knife, maybe they won't even use it. Or maybe they will use it or just don't even think about it. But one of the things I know that you get, and I think it probably it drives you, it makes you nervous, is when you send a knife out and you don't hear a thing. Nothing. That's nervous making, right? Yeah, especially when it's like a massive order that you just did. And you're right. like, do you even like the thing? Are yeah. we good? Did you get it? Yeah, is it? Did it? <laughs> Sometimes it's, and you know, people, they get the knife though. And I think too, at times like, we have to remember, like, we're not as important to them as no. we may think. No. And I think no. that's where a lot of people go wrong with selling shit, too, is that they're thinking more about me and my design and right. what I did. And it's like, you're, it's just a trick for everybody. Your customer doesn't give a shit. They, well, they're thinking about themselves and what they're going to do with the thing. It's and about, so they get right. it, and then they want to see what they're going to be doing with it. Even with selling it to them, it's like, I try to remind, like... All the marketing and everything is what you're going to do with the thing, not how this is the best thing I've ever created. But it's also the idea between artist, craftsman, business person. Yeah. Because it's a lot of times we fall I, for years on Knife Talk. And this was a simple This was a simple thing. I didn't really do much of it. All I wanted to say was I was trying to be controversial without being that controversial. And I basically had met somebody. At an, I was at Blade Show years ago, and I introduced myself. And, and I said, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm this, this. I'm Jeff Fader, and my business is Fader Knives. And this guy goes, oh, my name is so-and-so. I'm a knife artist. And I was like, a knife okay. artist? I was like, knife artist? What the fuck is, what's the, I said, because the funny thing is, is there are sculptors who use tools and mm-hmm. they use tools as their sculptures. There's this sculptor, his name, is, his name is Armand, and he's very famous for welding thousands of axes together. So you could say he's an axe artist. So when the guy says to me, I'm a knife artist, I'm thinking he boy's taking a pile of Wustoffs and he's welding them all together. <laughs> making an making iron a, throne. Yeah, making a sculpture with a fucking <laughs> knife. So that's what my immediately, that's what I think of. And, and then all of a sudden you meet all these people that they think that they're artists and they say that they're artists. And they're, I've gotten to the point now where you call yourself whatever you want. But the problem is, is when you start to think of yourself that way from a subconscious level, you're putting yourself at a different level or tier than someone who is a craftsperson or business person. And then you start to automatically think of yourself more. And you get into kind of diva land. You get into diva land and like what we were talking about in the beginning of you're not, well, I don't do those things. I don't do those things. And I'm guilty of that I, I have traumas of when I was a kid, my dad was a winemaker and he used to do farmer's markets and I hated them. I had to do them with them because the people... When you're giving wine samples away at a wine at a at a farmers market, what do you think majority of people are just trying to do? Yeah, they're just trying to get drunk, get bombed. On so your it's dollar. like they don't give a sh- they don't give a shit about the tasting notes. Trust me, they don't give a fuck about you and your winery. They're just wanting to give you a little bit more sample. So I hated it. I hated the asked questions. I hated everything about it, and it makes me like not want to do events, which is. 
And I think a lot of other people feel the same way. That's just like, I don't want to set up a booth. I don't want to stand around asking the same questions and I don't want to do it. And, and a lot of people are unwilling to do it. And what I give you a lot of credit for is you just got back from Georgia. Yeah. Tell me about, you were at the, a Georgia bushcraft event? Georgia bushcraft, yep. What was that like? So that was fun. Um, and it was actually two events in one. So there's a group called the Campfire Co-op, which is a bunch of different outdoor industry businesses that actually meet up together and talk and like they help each other out. And, you know, they're just talking about strategies, business, marketing, you know, and other bullshit that goes along with running a business. And it's just where a group where like-minded people in the industries can actually share ideas and help each other out. Because at the end of the day, like, you know, yes, there was like, you know, even at this event, Georgia Pushcraft, I think there was like maybe like 13 or 14 other knife makers. And some people would view that as competition, but it's like we're all different. Right. And the more of us here is the more interest that's going to come to this kind of thing. And just the the networking ability is huge at these kind of things. So, so go ahead. It was the first half was just the meetings and everything. And then the second half was the Georgia Bushcraft event itself where I had the booth. We were selling knives. We had them out there on display and everything. And then there was also events, classes, and things. Everybody camped there for the entire weekend. It's a fun time. It was cold as hell, though. Did you had a good time? Oh, it was great. And even it's just like we didn't like kill it with sales, but that wasn't my intention because, I mean, I joke around with this all the time, and like I'll still stand by the statement that bushcrafters don't really spend money because your hobby is to go out in the woods with as minimal amount of equipment as you have and make it happen. Bro. So I, I always catch flack for that one, but it's true. Like you guys, you guys, you know, it's meant don't, to be cheap. Don't listen. I got a, I got a funny story. I got a funny, I, when I started getting into this knife game, I started to meet guys who were like, they're making these choppers and these, they when I'm out in the woods, I, you know, I only use this and that and the other thing. And I wanted it. All I wanted to say to him is because my dad, I had a vineyard. So we were doing a lot of stuff out in the fields and the woods and we were you know cutting down trees and shit like that and all i could think of is if you if you're going out on a job if you're going out on a job let's say you're a park ranger and they're telling you they need you to clear out you know three quarters of a mile for a new part of the you know let's just say the appalachian trail needs a clearing out are you going to go out with a fucking knife no no, you're gonna go out with a chainsaw, Fucking or you're gonna go tools. out with you're gonna go out with power tools. You're gonna go out with the stuff. And I started to make jokes about it because it's just like these guys are chopping down trees. They're going nobody, nobody in their right mind, no park ranger is gonna be like, all I need is this competition chopper. That's all I need. No, it's not. And it's the same thing with the fucking lighting of the, you know, like I love all the, all these, you know, bushcrafters, but at the same time, I'm just like, if you're really, really in a situation where you just need this flint and this knife, I think you're in big trouble. <laughs> you're not going out. You're bringing a lighter with you. Promise. I'm promising you. But it's always funny to me for the knife makers in general. It's like some of the, the, um, the gymnastics we go through in order to say how we live our lives is hilarious. Totally hilarious. Well, at times I feel like it's a lot of cosplaying. Of and course. It's, you're like, LARPing. Come on. You're, you're 100% really right. I had a couple 100%. guys come up to the uh, table and they would look at that like Hawaiian one I did and they would have like a seven inch blade like bushcraft right. knife on them. They're like, I wouldn't use that thing ever. Yeah. And I'm like, well, how often do you use this thing other than at this event yeah. where you're carrying around a, like, you know, because like also like at that event, I could throw a rock and hit a giant bushcraft knife. We weren't in a survival situation. 
Like yeah. that, <laughs> it's a, hilarious. Well, it's hilarious. They just they're, they're all trying to play the part, and I get it. But at times too, it's like I like to be practical with almost everything. Right. And even like it was like 22 degrees down there one morning, which is not normal for Georgia. No. And a couple of the guys at the tent across from me. Um, they were busting my balls because I brought a propane torch to light my fireplace. And they're like, oh, well, that's not very bushcraft of you. I'm like, I don't care. Lighter goes, yeah. and I have a fire. And the next morning when it was 22 degrees and I'm already making my coffee, and I see the guy with his little big lighter, and yeah. he's trying to get his fire going, and I see him looking over at me. I'm like, come on, bud. You can come over here. You can take the torch. I won't tell anyone. And now I'm telling everybody on the podcast. But... It's like, yeah, come on, cheat a little bit. It's fine. You don't need to prove yourself to me right now. That's one of the things with knife making that's just so exhausting. This is this concept of, of there's a virtue. There's this virtue of the way you do things. And it might be in bushcraft too. I remember I made a knife, and I, put, I think years ago, and I put, I put bushcraft in the hashtag or something like that. And the guy goes, this is not a bushcraft knife because it's got a knuckle guard. These are fighting knives. Knuckle guards are fighting guys. And I was just like, sure. My man, this is, you know, I'm with you. And that, that I was just like, I I'm with you. I don't my I don't I don't fight. I don't fight for free. I don't no. I don't fight for free on the internet. You got to pay me to fight. So, those, but those at the same the time, people want to listen to anyway because I bet you, I can almost guarantee you the guy never fucking does anything. Well, like this is the this is also the problem with the culinary game too is is we're coming up with these we're coming up with these gymnastics in order to have a degree of of um, of valiance. Valiance is really the right word, and it's this fake. And it, it isn't as much as it was maybe seven, seven, six or seven years ago. There was a lot more people, knife makers, who were pumping their pumping, puffing out their chest in regards to what's what's correct and what's not correct. And a part of me feels like social media is kind of weeding a lot of these old kind of pains in the asses out. But at the same time, times are definitely changing in regards to that. But I remember people just throwing themselves around about if you're using jigs to make your knives, you're not a knife maker. Or if you're not forging your knives, you're not a knife maker. Or if you're not doing a fat satin finish and you're doing these these belt finishes, you're not a knife maker. And there were these, and if you're taking deposits, you're not a knife. And there were all these like. There are all these things of valiance that were just completely for a community, not for a community that, like you said, like the bushcrafters, they don't pay anything. But it's the same thing with the knife makers. I mean, it's like you're not buying knives anyway. So it's like, who what the fuck do you care? Well, I had a guy at one of the shows I did recently, not the Georgia one, but it was another show up in Jersey. He was like looking at one of the knives and he's like, well, did you forge it? And I'm like, no. Yeah. I had a machine water jet cut it, and then I did all the rest of the work. And now at this point, too, I bring a blank with me for when people want to be assholes and be like, well, well you didn't really make it. And then I hand it to them and say, you turn this into that. Well, go, go I'll right tell ahead. you. I'll tell you how the hilarious part is. Mo- anybody who asks that question, they already know. Oh, they, I, If they don't know and they're really asking you the question, they don't know what forging looks like anyway. But I mean, that's the real, the real issue is, is most of these people are looking for words to say that show their degree of whatever expertise at whatever level they are. But most, most knife makers, you know, look, if you want to forge, forge, if you don't want to forge, don't forge. Most of these customers don't give a shit either, either way, but they want to create some type of, 
I don't know, pecking order in regards to, like I said, valiance. Yeah, but they're not your customer because even this guy, he wasn't going to yeah. buy it anyway. And two, I'm like, all right, so say I magically forge this thing. I'm going to slap another 400 bucks on that price tag. You cool with that? And he's like, well, no. And I'm yeah. like, all right, so then why are you busting my balls about it? You can't even afford it now. And it's stock I, removal. I was at a, uh, I was, when I was at uh, this maker's event uh, years ago with my friends and we were doing a lot of demos, this guy just like starts looking at me and he goes, what, uh, and he looked like he was asking these questions as if he was like, you know, you know, like a master bladesmith or something like that. And he goes, what's the metal that you're using? And that's a red flag. Those words right there are red flag. You don't know what he's talking about. Like there are certain words that people say, they just don't know what they're talking about. And the weirdest part is this concept between stock removal and forging and whether one is more valuable than the other. It's so irrelevant, but we've created this concept and part of it's forging fire and part of it's from, I blame, I blame, I blame knife talk, frankly. A knife talk has been um, a bastion of giving people of certain opinions in regards to what's you know more important than others. Um, but I, 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 it just, it's, it, the funny, the most interesting part about knife making is that the two guys who really crossed, who changed, if it wasn't for uh, Bob Loveless, who was a stock removal purist, stock removal purist, if it wasn't for Bob Loveless, the ABS, and he did not forge, and he used uh, powdered metal, steel, super steels, and all that bullshit. If it wasn't for him, the ABS probably wouldn't exist. That's the ABS is like a, and I'm you could if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But I, based on the conversations I had with Larry and Thomas, the ABS really started um, from oh God, Bill Moran. Bill Moran had Bill Moran. Bill Moran had was uh, started it as a result of, all right, everyone's going to be doing the stock removal shit. we got to make sure people are forging. So if it wasn't for the stock removal guys, the, the, the greatness of, of the ABS and forging probably wouldn't, would be buried and dead. Well, competition is always healthy anyway. Competition is always what's going to bring out new and better ideas. Whether or not they're held in any kind of merit is a different story. Because, you know, you hear some of the old stories about how Damascus is now a super steel because – I have nowhere from forging. It just got better, which it always like cracks me up when people will look at like a Damascus knife and think it's like, so, you know, straight from the heavens. Right. And then when you look at 1084, just in bar stock, you're like, oh, that's a cheap steel. And you're like, do you know what's used in most of these Damascus knives that you are calling amazing godly steels? It's all the same stuff. Everybody wants to feel like they know what they're talking about. And even knife makers. I mean, my experience as a blacksmith is we're coming up on, you know, we're coming up on 15 years of forging. I, the, the, the forging that I see from a lot of knife makers is nothing to write home, but nobody should be too impressed with it anyway. So it's like, it's just like everyone needs to kind of relax a little bit in regards to uh, stock removal versus forging. And it, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's unnecessary. It's an unnecessary flex. What makes me wonder is, I, for you, is who would you see as influences on your work? So I would say definitely a guy like Wegner Blades. Um, he's more of a field knife maker, outdoor knife maker. His designs are very clean, crisp, very utilitarian. And another one would, uh, and it's even like a guy who I'd probably want to like model my business off of is, uh, do you know LT Wright Knives? 
They're very big in the bushcraft world. And he started years ago and he started a shop underneath the staircase in his house. And now he's got, he's like, you know, one of the big names in the bushcraft knife land. And I mean, even at this last show I was at, like, I got to meet him. I'm actually looking at one of their knives that I got on a trade, which is like now, like, it's one of those ones I'm definitely going to cherish because he started from the ground up and does all by hand. Now has like eight employees in this shop out there. Wow. And they turn out numbers, like big numbers of knives with dealers and everything else. And they invited me to their shop to do a tour, which was, you know, here I am like always looking up to this guy and also me being me. Like I've done a lot of research of figuring out how he came up, you know, his business plans, everything else. Like, and then here he is saying, Hey, come on in. We'll show you how the sausage is made. And I was like, kind of taken away by that. Cause hmm. that's a guy that I've always looked up to for just knife design and also how to run a business. That's, it's gotta feel pretty good. Like you're on the right track. Well, it's, it's weird when these people like, and that's also a good thing about me going to these shows at times. Cause like, I don't know, we're all very isolated in our own world, especially living through phones all the damn time. And then too, like, you know, even the previous job, I did everything I could to go unrecognized. So now it's kind of weird having people actually recognize me and I don't know how I feel about it yet. Well, you have to, I mean, that's part of the game. You, know, well, you gotta, yeah. and you do a very good PS, you do a very good job. You don't stutter, you don't stammer, you're very quick to the point. You don't, you know, you don't, there's no fat on when you talk. So you're not, you're not doing what I'm doing with all this bullshit. You're, you're, there's no fat. You, you're really very, very good at, at selling your knives. If that means oh, anything. Straight to the meat and potatoes. But, yeah, no, uh, you're good at it. You're really good. You're really good. You're really good at like, there's no, uh, there's no extraneous words. Well, people, you know, especially that's just from me studying what works. And it's like, I don't know. A lot of times people think that there's not that much goes into this, but like all day long, I'm looking into this when I'm not working on, like physically, I guess it's like working on the business or working for the business or whatever the hell they break that down as like, I'm always trying to research new things. And even if it's in like different realms, like I'll listen to the guys like Jimmy DeResta talk all the time in their podcast. And it's like, I'm not doing anything close to what they're doing. But when you listen to like hooks and getting people engaged and everything else, like there's a little bit of everything you can learn. And like, also too, like you learn, like you're trying to tell a story every time you're doing these posts. People want to get interested if they're going to stay along with it or just get the information out there fast because, you know, they're going to be scrolling onto the next thing in no time. Well, I just feel as though you haven't been doing it very long and the way you're going about everything is awesome. Like I really like, I'm very impressed by your, everything you've been doing. It's really been like fun. It was really fun to meet you at, at uh, Maker Camp, and I'm really like you're a very impressive young man, and and uh, it's uh, it's really cool seeing what you're doing. Well, we we'll hope it keeps on going. Well, you hope you know. Don't <laughs> go home with hope. I mean, ain't that hope, just like fishing? Hope is hope is for the birds. Never hope is hope is the worst. That is the one thing I I I hate hope. I feel like luck. I feel like good luck sucks. I think. You got everything is your, it's it, you, it's you and your responsibility It's nothing to do with it. You have to do whatever it takes. You have to take complete responsibility for everything. That's my own problem. And you know, everything is my fault. I believe everything I do right or wrong is my fault. And it's like, I can't, I don't believe in hope or luck. I got to make my own. It's tough because sometimes you end up beating yourself up though. Cause that's something that I do way too often. Yeah, I mean, it's like you try to take responsibility for everything but at times you're like, oh man, you're being, a, I don't know. I'm very hard on myself. 
That's just me. I know. And I hope that you kind of like learn to not be as hard on yourself because I think that one of the things I remember is when I had my partnership and my, my partners and I would get these emails saying, we just wanted to know how things are going. And I would ultimately always think that they were being like, hurry up, hurry up. What are you doing? But my business partner told me, no, they're just excited. You have to stop. You have to stop with the worrying of people mad at you or anything like that. And it's hard. And once again, it's all experience. Experience kind of like teaches you to, you know, not be so hard on yourself. And I hope that, you know, you, I hope that you're not that hard on yourself, Frank. Well, it's uh, trying to learn this whole like work-life balance thing. It's kind of still very difficult. Well, you've only been doing it for like a couple of years. You still, you're not, you're not allowed to have work, work like balance. Yeah. You're got to like, you got to like, you yeah, know, you got to be, you know, you know what you got to be doing for now. I mean, that's the hard part. I was, what was it? I was listening to, I was listening to sport. I love sports radio because it's the only really great live broadcasting these days. And I was listening to this, these two guys and they were talking about their, you know, how they got to where they got. And one guy had been, he just wanted to be a broadcaster and he just worked, worked, worked. And then he got a job and he was getting first, he was getting coffee and he was like, he was just determined. And then he got the, then he got fired and then he had to go back to like the minor leagues and then he went back and then he did overnights and he just, he demand, he just, he was unrelenting and it probably was tough on his relationship with his wife and everything. But now he's got this great show and he's really, really good at what he does. But it's some people you gotta grind and you gotta just put your nose down and that's just the way it is. It's everything doesn't come easy and you I can tell when I see all your work and I see you look at your website's awesome and all the different knives you have, the different operations and the different things you do. I know how hard you work and I, it's, it's, I, I mean, if I, if that means, makes any, means anything. I, I mean, I appreciate how hard you're working. No, it does mean the world. Cause sometimes, like I said, we're all in our bubble and you never know if you're really doing the right thing or not. <sighs> I want to know if you're ever going to do like a old school survival knife. A ran- no one's doing like a Rambo knife where there's a little carp, but there's a little pocket with a fishing rod, a fishing reel. Yeah, inside. there is a guy, I mean, and you should look into him. The Wilson Custom Knives. Uh, he also has uh, his tech line. He's making them, but they actually work. Unlike the old Rambo ones that they fall apart and everything. He's a good guy. I think he's based out of Oregon, but like same thing. What's has his name? a compass and everything. Wilson Custom Knives. Right. And uh, he has his tech line series too, which is his like OEM ones that he's machining out. And then he has his handmade ones where like I saw him at Blade Show and like you can't miss this guy. He's wearing like the loudest purple and pink Hawaiian shirt and has a big cowboy hat on and like, a, you know, a mustache that goes pretty much ear to ear on him. And is this Craig Wilson or Jacob Wilson? I think it's Craig. Okay. Um, CKK. Okay. But, uh, and he had the classic, like, giant Rambo knife, serrations, everything else on it. And you're just looking at this thing and just made you feel like a kid again. Yeah, it's Wilson underscore custom underscore okay. knives. Wilson. And, Wilson. This is great radio. Yeah, it uh, sure is. But, like, it's literally everything you're describing, like, with the old junk, like, $15 gas station knife. But actually, like, he batons with it. He beats it up. He carves. And he's had it. I mean, one of the guys from uh, Essie, uh, the survival training company down in uh, Georgia, one of the guys, one of the instructors just took it to the jungle with him as his jungle knife. 
and used it for all of his tasks down there. So it's like... Give me this guy's name again. Wilson underscore what? Underscore custom underscore knives. <laughs> Wilson, you're going to have to pay me for this kind of plug now after does this. He, does he even listen to this? Yeah, it's Sam Wilson. He's the man. And his like... it's okay, But that's kind of stuff like that too where you're like... You're almost wondering, like, how many people are really buying these things? But it's got to be enough because this is his full-time job is making these things. Oh, shit. They look cool. Yeah. they're And, like, you know, of course, everybody who gets it has to load it up, like, the fishing line and everything else. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, it's a lot of the stuff that you're using it for is kind of, like, tchotchke stuff anyway. You're never really going to be using that stuff. Oh, no, of course not. Of That's course a, like not. I talk about. Oh yeah, all. there he is with that fucking Hawaiian shirt. Yeah, you see what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, it's better Ooh. than his sign that he has at Blade Show because you just see the shirt. It's almost like glowing across the room. These guys are too funny. Yeah, I mean that's what you got to do. You're doing a Rambo knife and stuff like that. You got to like make it seem like you're uh, not as much. That's awesome. Well, yeah, I, you know that stuff is. I, I think that stuff is hilarious. But I actually am working on a couple bigger knives because right now it's been all small stuff. And, but like the big stuff, it's, I don't know, like I've tested all my knives and I do a lot of dirt time on all of them before they go out the door. Cause I don't want to, especially in some of the stuff that I'm making, like if a guy's using it on the job or if a guy's going out to the woods with the thing for a while, like you don't want the thing to be not perform. Right. So one of the bigger knives I've been working on, I actually tested on it all last winter. Cause in the shop, I heat it with wood just like we do the house. So I'm like breaking down wood with this thing every day for like four or five months. And I actually broke it. Um, not on the blade, but I broke the standoffs in the handle from batoning it so much. Hmm. Now, is somebody really going to be taking this knife and batoning it every day, all the time? I mean, maybe I did. So it's got to be up to snuff for like that kind of stuff. So, and actually that was the nice part about doing the George Bushcraft show is like I brought the one, the prototype that I've been working on. And I was able to just pass it around with people that I actually trust and they know what they're doing and get real feedback on it. What's next? What's next? For Man. Tom Nugent, Knives by Nuge, what's next? Just going to try to keep cruising. We're trying to really get more of these pursuit-based lines out there a bit more between the hunting series, the fishing series, the camping primitive series. We're trying to really get that to stick. And I mean, it has been so far. It's been very well received by the customer base. And then who knows? I've been playing with some uh, new handle designs and everything. I've been trying to like, you know, change it up a bit. Uh, Cage Daly, he was a big help with me doing a couple of handles like Kyle you know, like Coke bottle. Yeah, that he's the man. And I remember you talking about like influence versus inspired. And I was definitely heavily influenced with this last one that I did to the point where he even <laughs> he sent me the picture of the smaller one that he does. And I'm like, holy shit, I haven't made it look the same. Uh, oops. Sorry, That's Kyle. okay. That's Don't worry about Kyle. He'll be all right. Yeah. he's And it's funny because he even sent me the piece of my card. And he's like, I think you could do something with this. And normally I'm doing slabs and stuff. I'm like, well, let me try what he does with this Coke bottle and everything. But I ended up using the same goddamn neon pins and liner like he used on his one. I'm like, wow, that was a little subconscious influencing right there. There you go. But trying to do more of the custom work while also maybe one day doing more of a production line. Because like I said, like I want to get these, they're tools that I'm making. I'm not making art pieces. I want people to use them and to feel comfortable using them. And not everybody's going to go beat the crap out of a $300 knife. So I'm trying to get the price down even lower, whether that's like a mid-tech line. But, you know, that's all in the future. We'll see what happens. More blue blades, please. Oh, my God. More of the blue ones. So I get oh. people on it. I got people on the internet mad about that one. Why? Well, because blue is for trainers. 
Um, so Who gives a shit. Who gives then don't buy it. Well, I, I love I those blue blades. I tell everybody all the time: if you don't like it, just don't buy it. And also, like they're busting my balls about it being like a fighting knife. I'm like, I designed this for fishing. Like that's that's what are you worried about on the river? I had no idea. I know I had no idea that that's a training knife. All right, well there you go. Well, it's it's not. It's just that that's you know, like you said earlier, it's people who know a little bit about something trying to like explain to you why they know more than you. And I'm like, bro, like I've I've handled trainers. I've worked with this. Like I I do all the fighting with my buddies at jujitsu and everything too, where we'll put on gloves and we'll bring like trainers and stuff. Like I I, I know how this whole it. violence thing works. You don't yeah. have to explain it to me. But this is a fishing knife, so relax a little bit. Tom Nugent. Knives by Nuge, ladies and germs. Go follow Knives by Nuge on Instagram. Give this guy support. He's an awesome dude. I'm really like, I love watching what you're doing, and I'm really like, I'm into it, man. I'm, I'm, all on, I'm on board with Tom Nuge. I'm, I'm all on board with Tom Nugent. Knives by Nuge. Oh, I appreciate the support. And like I said, I wouldn't be able to do any of this without like your podcast, Knife Talk, even Full Blast. It's it's kind of weird being on this the amount of times I've listened to your podcast and now doing this thing. Well, it wasn't that bad, was it? No, no. Yeah, I feel pretty good afterwards. Is, is it feeling mutual? Feeling's great. Glad you're here. Glad you're here. I knew it was going to be good. I knew where we were going to go. And uh, I'm really happy you're here. And uh, look, I, I'm a huge supporter of you. And anything you need from me, let me know. Thanks, man. Appreciate it as always. Guys, you heard what I had to say. Go follow Knives by Nooch on Instagram. Go support this guy. He's doing a good thing. And we will see you next week. And if you're listening to this and it's Friday, Saturday is the Damascus Steel DCI Invitational. And you want to watch Knife Talk Live, that's where you go. Go to damascus.se to register for free. Okay, guys, we'll see you next week. Uh, bye-bye. <laughs> Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.